Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number three, Nehemiah chapter two. While the books of Ezra and Nehemiah work together, similarly to the books of Kings and Chronicles, the men, Ezra and Nehemiah, and their assignments from God were quite dissimilar and and distinct. Ezra was a priest, and he was a Torah teacher. His job was to revive the priesthood into a properly functioning body and to reform the Hebrew religion from the early Judaism that it was currently practicing that had been born up in Babylon back into the God-ordained Torah-based religion of the Bible. Now we could say that Ezra's mission revolved around religion and, and spirituality and that indeed his position and purpose was as a religious leader. Nehemiah, on the other hand, was primarily a politician. His mission proceeded mostly along secular lines. His job was to revive the city of Jerusalem, to make it defendable by rebuilding its broken down walls and gates. He also needed to raise the economy and to increase the population of Judeans in the city. We saw immediately in Nehemiah chapter 1 that Nehemiah, King Artaxerxes' cupbearer, had a spirit that was sensitive to God and open to his instruction and that he knew the Torah, probably having been taught by Ezra. Most importantly, we learn that it was the Lord who prepared and then called Nehemiah to his new role to govern the people of Judah. Now this tells us something important. Every element and level of the believing community plays its role. And it's needed. From the community leader to those who perform the less desirable tasks like cleaning up after others. Everyone is needed to participate, to do their part, not to just be spectators. And the Lord is not more disposed and present, nor is he more impressed in the life of the leader than he is in the lives of the blue-collar workers. However, the Lord does place more responsibility on the leader because the leader invariably has a greater effect on the direction and on the success of the community. Now, this is a principle that perhaps Paul did the best job of explaining whether we examine the Old Testament or the New Testament. And although we've all heard it before, it's time we hear it again and we recommit to it. If we're to be a true community, a community of spirit-driven believers, which is what a congregation is, then we need to operate within this principle. Please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 
And we're going to read verses 4 through 27. 1 Corinthians, if you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1433. Follow along with me, please. Now, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit gives them. Also, there are different ways of serving, but it's the same Lord that's being served. And there are different modes of working, but it's the same God working them all and everyone. Moreover, to each person is given the particular manifestation of the Spirit that will be for the common good. To one through the Spirit is given a word of wisdom. To another, a word of knowledge in accordance with the same Spirit. In another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to judge between spirits. To another, the ability to speak in different kinds of tongues. And yet, to another, the ability to interpret tongues. One and the same Spirit is at work in all these things, distributing to each person as He chooses. For just as the body is one, but has many parts, and all the parts of the body, though many, constitute one body, so it is with the Messiah. For it was by one Spirit that we were all immersed into one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, And we were all given the one spirit to drink. For indeed the body is not one part, but it's many. And if the foot says, I'm not a hand, so I'm not part of the body, that doesn't make it stop being part of the body. And if the ear says, I'm not an eye, I'm not part of the body, that doesn't make it stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, how could it hear? If we were all hearing, how could it smell? But as it is, God arranged each of the parts of the body exactly as He wanted them. Now, if they were all just one part, where would the body be? But as it is, there are indeed many parts, yet just one body. So the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, or the head to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be less important turn out to be the most necessary. And upon body parts which we consider less dignified, we bestow greater dignity. And the parts that aren't attractive are the ones we make as attractive as we can while our attractive parts have no need for such treatment. Indeed, God has put the body together in such a way that he gives greater dignity to the parts that lack it. So that there will be no disagreements within the body, but rather all the parts will be equally concerned for all the others. Thus, if one part suffers, all the parts suffer with it. And if one part is honored, all the parts share its happiness. Now you together constitute the body of Messiah and individually you are all parts of it. Usually when this passage is read, 
It's to highlight that even the so-called lowliest or least among us, uh, among us have great and important roles to play. And if we obey the Lord in doing so, then in His eyes we are great. Where I'm heading is that it is popular and I think often warranted in our day to disparage and to blame our political leadership for the downward trend of our nation's morality, stagnant economy, dubious wars. We send our young men and women to fight. Generally anything else that we're dissatisfied with. And the first thing I want to remind us all of is that God tends to give us the leaders we deserve not the leaders that we need. That's usually because we don't want them. I think about King Saul, for instance, whom the people wanted because he was big and he was tall and he was youthful and he was handsome. Very dynamic man. All the outward attributes that tend to be attractive, if not irresistible, to people who haven't learned God's principles, or maybe they have, but they've put them aside. Especially as concerns elected leaders in democracies. In reality, they are accurate reflections of the condition and attitudes of that nation's citizens. That's a hard one, isn't it? I want you to think on that for a moment. Much like the condition of Sarat, that spiritually caused skin disease affliction, much like it was just an outward indication of the inward state of spiritual defilement of a God worshiper, so are the men and women that we elect, but the most visible indicators of the inward state of morality and uprightness, or lack of it, of our nation's citizenry. Folks, they are us. It's only that oftentimes, as in our day, we just don't like what's revealed in them. Because it's really an indictment about us. However, in His great mercy, on rare occasions... Yehovah will raise up a community leader that runs counter to the prevailing culture in a positive way. And this leader works by example and by decree to bring the citizens out of their their, their self-centeredness or their pessimism or moral decay and to put the community or nation back into a more godly footing, an uplifting track. My point is that while Nehemiah was indeed a government politician and essentially he acted as a secular government leader, he was needed as an indispensable part of the Judean community. He was as needed as Ezra, who was entirely focused on the spiritual sphere. And even though Nehemiah was equipped by God and providential circumstances trained him up to be a leader of a secular government. And he would fight for the practical, the pragmatic, the tangible things of everyday life for his people. 
the Jews. He was not a secular man. He was a devout worshiper of the God of Israel. Thus, as happens from time to time, God raised up a leader in Nehemiah, even in a pagan empire, that did not reflect the community condition, but rather He was sent to reform it, to strengthen it. The point, again, we need worshipers of the God of Israel in secular government. We need them. And we need to pray for our government leaders, secular or believer, because they are a necessary, they are a needed part of the community. But especially we need to pray for leaders, whether in government or in the church or in the synagogue, who are swimming against the tide of secular humanism and populist trends and tolerance and inclusiveness for all things and immorality. These leaders will be opposed, accused, slandered, despised by the majority of whatever kind of community they've been assigned to lead. But that's the nature of the job. And already in Nehemiah chapter 2, we see the opposition to Nehemiah's mission surface, just as it did for Ezra. So open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah chapter 2. We're going to read it all. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it is page 1131. 1131. Nehemiah chapter 2. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, Artaxerxes the king, it happened that I took the wine and I brought it to the king. And prior to then, I had never appeared sad in his presence. And the king asked, why do you look so sad? You're not sick. So this has to be some kind of deep inner grief. And at this I became very fearful. As I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why shouldn't I look sad when the city, the place where my ancestors' tombs are, lies in ruins and its gates are completely burned up? And the king asked me, what is it that you want? And I prayed to the God of heaven. Then said to the king, if it pleases the king, if your servant has won your favor, send me to Judah, to the city of my ancestors' tombs, so that I can rebuild it. And with the queen sitting next to him, the king asked me, well, how long is your trip going to take? When will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I gave him a time. I then said to the king, If it pleases the king, have letters given to me for the governors of the territory beyond the river so that they will let me pass through until I reach Judah. Also a letter for Asaf, the supervisor of the royal forests, so that he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress belonging to the house, for the city wall, and for the house I will be occupying. The king gave me these according to the good hand of my God on me. Now I went to the governors of the territory beyond the river and I gave them the king's letters. The king had sent with me an escort of army captains and cavalry. And when Sanballat, the Horani, and Tovia, the servant, the Ammonite, heard about this, they were very displeased. 
that someone had come to promote the welfare of the people of Israel. So I reached Jerusalem. And after I'd been there for three days, I got up during the night, and I, I and a few men with me, and I hadn't told anyone what my God had put into my heart to do for Yerushalayim. I didn't take any animal with me except the animal on which I was riding, and I went out by night through the valley gate to the dragon's well and the dung gate and inspected the places where the walls of Yerushalayim were broken down and where its gates had been burned down. Then I went on to the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal under me to pass. So I went up to the valley in the dark, went on to inspecting the wall, and then I turned back. I entered through the valley gate and returned without the officials knowing where I had gone or what I had done. Till then, I hadn't said anything about this to the Judeans, the Kohanim, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or anyone who would be responsible for the work. And afterwards, I said to them, You see what a sad state we're in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins? Its gates burned up? Come! Let's rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we don't have to continue in disgrace. I also told them of the gracious hand of my God that had been on me, also what the king had said to me, and they said, let's start building at once. Energetically, they set out to do this good work. When Sanvalat the Horani, Toviah the servant, the Ammonite, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they began mocking us, jeering. What is this you're doing? You're going to rebel against the king? But I answered them, the God of heaven will enable us to succeed. Therefore we, his servants, will set about rebuilding, but you have no share, right, or history to commemorate in Jerusalem. Oh, I'd love to hear those words spoken today from the leader of Israel. Although we won't thoroughly review it, this chapter opens with that troublesome piece of information that it was in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that Nehemiah found an opportunity to approach the king about going to Jerusalem. I'm only going to address this because I'm constantly hit with questions about the Hebrew calendar, the biblical calendar, and the modern calendar, and how we're, all, we're to relate to all this as believers. And these calendars get mixed up rather easily. Very briefly. Chapter 1 said that Nehemiah learned about the problem of Jerusalem's walls still in ruin and the Judean people's precarious position as a result in the month of Kislev. But now chapter 2 says that in that same year that Nehemiah learned about it, in the month of Nisan, he went to the king about this matter. Now I want to use modern month names to better explain this conundrum. Kislev is equivalent to November. Nisan is equivalent to March, approximately. So the scripture passage says, Nehemiah learned about this matter in November, but in the same year went to the king in March. It doesn't add up very well, does it? Since obviously November comes after March. But imagine if one day our government decreed that January would no longer be the first month of the calendar year. Rather, for certain reasons, it was being changed to November. So from here forward, 
The first month of the year is November. The last month of the year then is October. There's nothing magical about it. Seasons don't change. Festivals don't change. Which month comes first is simply a decision. That's essentially what's happened here in Nehemiah. See, in the Hebrew world, the year originally began with Nisan because that's the way it is in the Torah. But in the Babylonian world, they started the new year in Tishri, seven months later. Now because the Jews had been exiled to Babylon and then remained in that same area by choice, when the Persians took over the empire from the Babylonians, the Jews in time adopted the Babylonian way of counting months and years. That is why, on the one hand, the Jews can say that from a religious viewpoint, the new year indeed begins in Nisan, but in the civil or better secular viewpoint, the new year begins um, with Tishri. And to commemorate this changing of calendars that God in no way authorized, the Jews invented a holiday. They called it Rosh Hashanah, Jewish New Year. But in reality, it wasn't Jewish at all. Jewish New Year is a complete misnomer. It was merely the Jews conforming to the calendar of the pagan Gentile world as created by the Babylonians. But then later on, in the Roman Empire, the Romans again changed the calendar. Now, the new year began with a newly named month called January. January was named for the Greek god Janus, the god of beginnings. The second month on the Roman calendar, February, was named after Februum, which was a pagan purification ritual. And so on and so forth. And yet, when the Romans made this change, the Jews stuck with the Tishri calendar of the Babylonians. They did not revert to the biblical Hebrew calendar. And so now in our day, the Jews still celebrate New Year's Day as the first day of Tishri using the Babylonian calendar. They advanced the Hebrew calendars by one year on the first day of Tishri. And so Jewish New Year then moves around in relation to the modern world calendar that was originated by the Romans. So, for those of you who prefer to celebrate New Year's Day, on the first day of Tishri is the biblical one, in other words, Rosh Hashanah, and you shun the first day of January as New Year's, as pagan, just know you are not celebrating anything godly or biblical either way. Actually, by celebrating Rosh Hashanah, you're just observing the ancient pagan Babylonian calendar that Judaism adopted. By observing the first day of January, you are observing the ancient pagan Roman calendar that every literate society on earth has adopted except for Judaism. I bet that burst a few balloons. So as concerns our story, the 
Persian Empire operated on the basis of the Babylonian calendar that starts with the month of Tishri. And that's what Nehemiah is, of course, using. In this system, Tishri is the first month of the year. Kislev, when Nehemiah first heard about the Jerusalem problem, is the third month of the year. And Nisan, when he requested to go to Jerusalem, is the seventh month of the year. So we learn that Nehemiah heard about the problem in the winter. Then about four months later in the spring, he was finally able to speak to the king about it. Now, the occasion of speaking with the king doesn't seem to have been planned but rather was an opportune moment. Apparently the king was having a banquet, and we know from as early as the story of Esther that Persian kings were especially fond of two things, wine and women. This is this makes it quite usual to see a Persian king's wife, the queen, in attendance, but it's usually during the many social affairs that involved heavy drinking. Indeed, Nehemiah is presenting the royal family with their wine, and the queen is present. Now, since it's a party, and it was supposed to be a pleasant, happy, and playful affair, it would be a serious breach of etiquette for any member of the king's staff to wear anything but a pleasant expression on his or her face. So when Nehemiah appeared in a down mood and he wasn't able to hide it, the king instantly saw it and he inquired why Nehemiah looked bad. See, the Hebrew word used here is raw. And its basic meaning is evil. It can also denote something that's bad or or unpleasant. In fact, in the most literal Hebrew, the the phrase is, why is your face so evil? Or so bad. Face, panim. That means presence or countenance. So a good understanding using modern words would be, why is your countenance so depressed? But then the king comments that, well, Nehemiah doesn't appear to be ill, so his body language must indicate some deep inner grief he's wrestling with. We next read that Nehemiah thought to himself, oh boy, now I'm in trouble. So he became fearful. Why would he be in trouble? Again, the job of the king's staff was to be in tune with the mood of the occasion. A down mood was completely inappropriate for a good party. And so Nehemiah feared the king would punish him, maybe even discharge him for this insolence. And of course, a reasonable question, at least to me, is, you know, it's been four months since Nehemiah first heard about Jerusalem. So why is he so depressed over it now that he can't hide it even though he understands that his appearance is not usually tolerated by royalty? We're not given any reason for it. Nor are we given any clues to why it took four months before he said something to the king. It could have been that the king wasn't at the palace in Shushan when Nehemiah first got the word from his brother and the king had only maybe recently returned. Maybe that's why there was a party. Might have been that Nehemiah was waiting for the right moment or perhaps, as I kind of suspect, after walking around the rock, considering every aspect of this matter, 
and, and, and what trying to do something about this situation might mean for Nehemiah's career or social status, he was getting cold feet. And he was kind of ready to drop the whole thing. You know what I mean? Oh, we hear something great for a cause. Oh, boy! It doesn't take very long before we kind of reevaluate and say, well, now how is this going to affect me? Do I really want to get involved with this? thing is, he was tormented about this in his heart. And only by accident did the king see that torment written on his face and the king forced the issue. Well, whatever the reason for the long delay, it seems that Nehemiah was surprised and he was unprepared to be confronted at this moment by Artaxerxes. Now, I imagine that God had intervened and he had answered Nehemiah's prayer from back in chapter 1, which had been prayed four months earlier. But he did it in a most unexpected way, in an unexpected timing, producing a most uncomfortable situation. But isn't that how God works? His way and His time despite our opinion on the matter. And if we procrastinate, the Lord is just liable to force the issue when we least suspect it's coming. Let me give you a word to the wise. This is from my own experiences with the Lord. Do what we see the truly righteous of God do all throughout the Bible. Get up early in the morning and run to the righteous battle that we've been assigned. Trust in the Lord for the outcome. If the Lord has willed it for you, you're going to face it, whatever it is, one way or another. Better to do it in the Lord's will and in faith rather than being less than willingly thrown into battle because we've hesitated. Now, what Nehemiah had feared was annoyance in the king questioning him turned out to be Artaxerxes' true sensitivity towards a man that the king obviously had affection and respect for. And Artaxerxes cared about what troubled Nehemiah. He'd never seen him in such a state before. But Nehemiah's stuck. You know, he can't say, you know what, I really don't want to talk about it right now. This is a bad time for me. When the king asks, you reply. So he responds first with the standard Persian greeting of respect by saying, may the king live forever. Then asks rhetorically, well, why shouldn't he look depressed when the place where his ancestors were buried was in ruins with his gates burned up? This response has a few aspects to it that were par for the course in Nehemiah's day but might go unnoticed in modern Western culture. First, the dilapidated condition of Jerusalem, the ancient homeland of his people, wore on Nehemiah because it was still an important symbol of his Hebrew heritage. But second, that all-important issue of shame and honor was at stake. Shame and honor were the driving forces behind all biblical era societies. 
And since ancestor worship also played a role in the death and and afterlife cult in virtually all known societies of that era, even in Hebrew culture, then for Nehemiah's ancestors' burial sites to be desecrated, at least in his eyes, well, that brought shame upon he and his family. Shame is not in reference to the emotion of being ashamed, feeling bad, feeling guilty. Rather, it means Nehemiah's social status of honor has been diminished and a serious element of shame has been introduced into his life. Even though, until four months ago, he had no knowledge of this situation with his ancestors' burial place. Now, for a shame and honor-based culture, loss of honor is intolerable. And since the burial places of all the Jews in and around Jerusalem would have also have been affected similarly, then his shame would extend to many Jews, thus making his kinsmen generally in a condition of shame as well. Understand, from Artaxerxes' viewpoint, the king of a shame and honor culture could not have one of his royal court living in a societal status of shame because it would reflect on him. So Artaxerxes, obviously seeing Nehemiah's great value to him, took this situation immediately to heart. And he essentially asked him how he might help to remedy it. Now what's interesting is that while we know from the story that the city and the place that Nehemiah is referring to is Jerusalem. Nowhere do we find it told to the king. I can only assume that the city of Jerusalem was understood or maybe that not all the conversation was recorded because it's unimaginable that the king that's so interested in Nehemiah's request wouldn't inquire about what city he was talking about. It is equally unimaginable that the king didn't know that Nehemiah was Jewish. There was no need in the Persian Empire to hide one's ethnicity. So there's no ambiguity. The subject was Jerusalem. Verse 5 says that Nehemiah prayed before he responded to Artaxerxes' question. No doubt this was one of those quick and silent prayers. The same kind that most of us have prayed silently in but a second, it seems like. As we come upon a bad traffic accident and we, we see injured people. Or as our doctor tells us we have a health problem. Or as we sit seated for a job interview. This just further shows that Nehemiah had a close relationship with the Lord and he knew that the outcome was in his hands. So boldly, Nehemiah blurts out his request. He asked to go to Jerusalem to the city of his ancestors' tombs and to rebuild it. Note, note, not just to rebuild the walls, to rebuild the city. Also note, still no mention of Jerusalem. So why is the word Jerusalem left out of conversation? in which it was the chief topic. I think it's because the issue of Jerusalem was a sensitive one. 
See, an earlier Persian king, Darius, had allowed Zerubbabel, the Jew Zerubbabel, to go there to rebuild the temple and the city walls. However, when local opposition arose to the project, Darius first took the position to stop all work based on the accusations of the opponents that Zerubbabel's hidden agenda was to create the conditions for a Jewish rebellion. Further, it wasn't Darius's idea that Zerubbabel go to Jerusalem to rebuild. It was his predecessors, King Cyrus's. Once a record search found King Cyrus's original decree to allow the Jews to rebuild their temple in the city walls, confirming Zerubbabel's claims, then Darius allowed the work to begin again. But only the temple was completed. The city walls were not rebuilt. Later on, King Artaxerxes took over the reins of the empire. And he allowed Ezra the priest to go to Jerusalem to institute reforms to the priesthood and to the Jewish religion as it was being practiced at the time. Artaxerxes even contributed substantial quantities of gold and silver and other items needed for ritual and sacrificing, like animals and olive oil and grain. But then, social issues centering on the Judeans marrying foreign women arose and it caused a huge furor and the resultant disillusion of hundreds and hundreds of marriages seemed to disrupt any further improvements to the city including the rebuilding of the, of the defensive walls. Now no doubt King Artaxerxes was deeply disappointed and he was troubled that the walls of Fortress Jerusalem had not been rebuilt as planned because he needed this strategic location to help him keep hold of his empire. Now Nehemiah, a member of his royal court, stood before the king, the same king, asking to go and to attempt the same endeavor. Would he send yet another Jewish governor pour even more of the Persian treasury into this issue of Jerusalem? But the matter of Jerusalem was just too strategically important to ignore and Nehemiah was not Ezra. Nehemiah had proved himself to be a capable leader. He was loyal to the king. He was trained in the ways of power and diplomacy compromising when necessary. What have I just described? A politician. And it was going to take a person with special qualities to make this project happen. The king well knew the political sensitivities involved in the region and his eye was on the several rebellions swirling around his empire to spend too much political capital on resolving power struggles of a handful of relatively petty potentates in the Beyond the River province. Rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem would be a supreme challenge and few could pull it off. In fact, those important walls lay in ruin for about 175 years. And that is proof enough of the difficulty of getting them rebuilt. The king thought Nehemiah could be that special man and so he fully supported Nehemiah's requests. Now don't think for a moment 
that Nehemiah was naive and he didn't understand the king's agenda. The favor that Artaxerxes showed the Jews, though genuine, served a political purpose. Making his devoted cupbearer, Nehemiah the Jew, the governor of Judah, served a political purpose. Rebuilding and repopulating Jerusalem, that served a political purpose. See, what the king didn't know, though, is that all of this was being orchestrated from heaven to serve Jehovah's purpose. And the king responded by asking Nehemiah how long he'd be gone. We're not told what Nehemiah's answer was, but we can probably assume that the time that Nehemiah estimated was substantially less than the time it turned out to be. 11 or 12 years And what king would be concerned that a man that he considered important to his administration not be gone too long, but find 12 years to be an acceptable number? Besides, how could Nehemiah possibly know in advance how long all this was going to take? He'd never even seen Jerusalem in his life. So in chapter 13, we find King Artaxerxes, after his cupbearer being gone about 12 years, finally sending for Nehemiah to come home, to return to the palace. Well, Nehemiah thoroughly understood the challenges that lay ahead of him and also this precarious lay of the political landscape. So he requested royal letters of safe passage through the various territories that formed the large beyond the river province. And since Nehemiah's mission was a political one, a very volatile one at that, he was wise to accept to expect subterfuge and outright hostility from the region's various governors governors and leaders. See, it seems that Nehemiah being named as the governor of Judah set off a firestorm of jealousy and discontent among the several local rulers who each tried to hold unofficial sway over that province of Judah. See, that's the way of the power-hungry. In fact, the lack of ancient records that record the name of a specific governor of Judah at this moment indicates that the appointment of Nehemiah was not replacing anyone. Rather, he was going to have to carve out his own power structure from a number, from among a number of local power seekers who had their sights set on adding the rule over Judah to whatever their current territorial holdings were. So Nehemiah was going to be seen as unwelcome competition. Well, once he received the letters of safe passage, and of introduction to the several governors and officials of the region, Nehemiah also asked for official instructions to be given to Esoph, the ruler, the manager of the royal forests, so that Nehemiah could obtain all important timber for three purposes. Building new gates for the city walls, for use in construction of the walls themselves, and for the governor's mansion that Nehemiah would occupy. It's hard to know whether this was a new mansion or if this was going to be an existing one that just needed repair and maybe expansion. Nonetheless, we see again the mindset of an experienced politician 
who understands that his position merits him living in a grand house and that doing so sets him apart and above those he governs but alongside those who rule other provinces. In fact, it was expected of him by both the king and the Judeans. A mansion was one of the symbols of his authority. And establishing his authority was job number one. But as Nehemiah's memoir state, he also saw through the clutter. And he recognized that God's hand was upon him in this entire situation. This, to my mind, accounts for the bold and the fearless approach that he took to complete this mission. Now remember that Nehemiah's mission on the surface was a purely secular one. Rebuild the walls so the king of Persia could have a formidable strategic outpost from which he could control the region. Revive Jerusalem's economy, grow the population with Jews, and provide safety and security for the residents, or none of the aforementioned was going to amount to very much. Now, none of this sounds very pious or godly, does it? Rather, more like a worldly endeavor that any government leader might undertake. Yet the Father knows that this is the world. It's not heaven. And His chosen people were in a stagnant and disadvantaged condition until these very practical matters of daily life are resolved. Sending another priest, that wasn't the answer. Because a priest would not be equipped to deal with the politicians and the enemies and fortress construction and and defense, no matter how devoted to the Lord he might be, as Ezra demonstrated. It was going to take a cunning and savvy political leader, but with all the downsides and personality that comes with that. Now I want to end our time together today with this thought. We can know as believers that while we can't live on bread alone, we still need bread to live. And while a job and a place to live won't get us any closer to heaven, we and our families still need income and we need shelter. It's harder to think on the higher things of God on an empty stomach or when we're under siege than when we feel safe and secure. And our merciful Father knows this because He created us. So don't ever become so idealistic or heavenly minded as some put it as to think that you can pray your way to solving all the practical things of life that you already have the means to obtain by your own labors and actions. Life with God is a partnership. He does His part. We do our part. And what we see in Nehemiah is a great partnership forming between this pragmatic man who says yes to God and he seeks Him at every turn. But then he is also ready to take 
compassion to get his hands dirty to take risks I admire Nehemiah as a role model of a godly form of let's get it done leadership more than I can express to you we're going to continue with this chapter next time